Testament. Uh, we're going to continue our, uh, our series called Storytelling God uh, about Jesus' parables. Okay, so Luke 15. If, uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can look it up on your phone on the YouVersion app. Our, our, our notes are there in the live events section. You can find them there. Uh, pretty helpful stuff. So, uh, so every famous teacher, preacher, speaker, leader, uh, they have defining moments. Uh, in in whatever it is that they do, but they, they all of them have like a famous speech or just some kind of defining moment if you think about it. Uh, so uh, Martin Luther King Jr., defining moment. I have a dream, right? You remember that, right? Okay, all right. Abraham Lincoln, four score and seven years ago. The Gettysburg Address, right? Right? Ronald Reagan. Yeah, tear down that wall. Yeah, very good. All those people born in the 70s and 80s got that one decently well. All right, so, uh, so uh, you have these defining moments in these leaders' lives. They gave all those people thousands of speeches throughout their lives, right? For, for Martin Luther King Jr., thousands of sermons throughout his whole entire life. But we remember this one defining moment, right, that you remember. I think Jesus had... He told these stories, these parables, and, and we remember some of them. We don't remember all of them. Some of them are small, some of them are larger. But there are def- there's one that I think defines them. They're all great. All of them have truth. All of them have value. All of them are important. All of them are equally inspired by the, by the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying that there's one that's better than the other one. But there is like a defining moment, this one parable that sticks with you that we all can remember if we were put in the spot on the man on the street interview and we say please just tell us about one of the parables of jesus we probably have one that sticks out to us and that one i think is in luke 15 for a lot of us it's the parable of the prodigal son okay which we're going to talk about actually about more than just one guy uh but the parable of the prodigal son and the reason why i think that it's so important is because there's a lot of people who call it this that it is the gospel in a nutshell that it most perfectly packages the truth of the gospel in one central story okay so i think that we need to pay our full attention to this one story and here's what i'm going to do and i don't normally do this uh we are going i'm going to read out loud without stopping without giving any kind of interpretation i'm going to give the whole story in luke 15 i'm going to read it and what i want you to do i don't normally do that because it's long i think it's 30 something verses okay but i'm going to read the whole thing and i want you to follow along now i'm going to read it in the english standard version okay uh and if you don't have an english standard version here's what i want you to do i want you to either close your eyes and just think for a second or watch the screens or something like that because what happens when we're reading different translations you spend half the time trying to figure out what translation is which and what words change and all that stuff but and if you want to it's okay because I, I want you to really hone in and think through and live through and envision what jesus is talking about in this parable okay so, so whatever you need to do, if you need to close your eyes to, to, to get rid of distraction, that's fine. Just don't fall asleep, okay, on me. That's, that'd be great. All right, but we're going to read throughout Luke uh, 15. We're going to start at verse 1, okay? So read, read with me, uh, focus with me, envision with me what Jesus is saying uh, in Luke uh, chapter 15. Here we go. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, him being Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. 
What man among you have a hundred sheep? If he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost." Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine across the, uh, arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this is my son who is dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near the house, he heard the music and the dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your, you have, your, um, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look! These many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother has, was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. Father, this parable is an amazing work of art. It is a beautiful telling of your gospel. And might we now uh, be able to dig from 
many years of experience, God, I, I pray that we'd be able to dig truth. And no matter where we've been, whether this is the first time that we've ever heard this story, God, I pray that the truths would impact the heart of the listener. But God, if, even if we've read or heard or maybe even heard preach this text before, God, I pray that there would be something new to refresh and revive our spirits within us. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for this story. Amen. Now, I want you to picture something real quick as we get into this parable. I want you to picture, what if life was like this? What if every time you got in your car and you headed into town, let's just say Somerville. I know there's two roads now that lead from Cane Bay that get to Somerville. I get that. Okay. Well, let's let's imagine three weeks ago when there was only one, right? And on your way into Somerville, lining 17A, were dozens, if not hundreds, of crosses. And on those crosses are people that are being executed. Some in various forms of execution. Some of them been there for like a day. Some of them been dead for a long time. Some of them have been dead for weeks or months, and they just sit there rotting on these crosses as you head into town. And that's your everyday. That's your commute. That's your normal. That was the reality of a first century Jerusalem city dweller. That every day, the Romans had put up dozens, if not hundreds of crosses on the roads leading into the city of their community members, people that they knew, friends, men, women, children. The reason why they did this was because they had taken over about 100 years before this moment in this scripture passage. About 100 years before this, the, Roman had taken over, the Romans had taken over Jerusalem. They had taken over most of the known world. And in fact, the Roman Empire had spread from Britain, think about this, from Britain all the way down to India. Think about that landmass for just a second. Now, in our world today, you can fly in a couple hours from, you know, from, that pl- from Britain to India if you wanted to. But in that day, in order to move, like if you wanted to get somewhere from Britain to India, that would take you years to get there, especially a whole group of people to get there. So they, they had to be able to control all of that land. Well, how do you do that? How do you control that much land mass at one time? Well, you have a gigantic, big, stinking army. That's what you got. You have to, you have to, you have to tell the people that they live in constant fear that this giant army is going to crush them. And they did that. So the people lived in fear. And you had to pay for this gigantic army that you had. Somehow you had to pay to feed them, to put uniforms on them, for the, for the weapons. You had to pay for all of that. Well, how are you going to do that? You were going to tax the people. That's how you were going to do that. Well, how are you going to tax the people? Because you don't know these lands that, you know, there's not enough Roman citizens to do this, okay? So you, you had to figure out how you were going to collect taxes from all these millions of people that lived this, the, through the known world. How are you going to do that? Well, how do you know who owns what property and what farmer owns what land and what, what person owns which house? Well, you have to get people that are in the community to do this. And so that's what they did. They hired people within their own communities to be collectors of taxes. And this is and they didn't they they did they did this in a very simple form. They said, this is how much money that we think that we need from this particular community. 
we don't care how much you actually collect, we just want this portion. And so your tax collectors were traitors to the Romans. They were community members. These are the people who served alongside of you in the community, yet they were hired by the Romans and told that you can collect because you have now the clout of the Roman army behind you, and we will enforce the law that these people pay taxes, and they have to do what you tell them to do, and you decide what the price is. And so the tax collectors took what they wanted. So there's numerous stories in the scripture, Zacchaeus being one of them. took whatever he wanted, very greedy. And he gave the Romans what they needed, but he took whatever he wanted. Can you imagine that? So these tax collectors were the reason why every day you walked by and your friends, men, women, and children, are hanging on crosses on the side. They are funding the army that is doing that to the people. Do you think they hated them? So when your Bible says the tax collectors and sinners are listening to Jesus, can you imagine? These are not just your basic IRS agent. These are people that were hated, traitors, ingrates, unlovable, unreconcilable, terrible people. And so you have, at the beginning of this story, these are the people, verse 1, put it back on the screen, Amanda, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him. The ingrates to society. Think about the most hated people in our world. That's who is coming to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes, do you think? (laughs) Grumbled. They grumbled. They were frustrated. There was this guy who was doing miracles. And the worst of society was coming near, and he wasn't sending them away. He was actually inviting them, and he would would invite himself into their homes and stay with them. That was offensive. Imagine imagine if you heard that me, the pastor of this church, decided to go to a white supremacist meeting. Would you be offended by that? You should be. That I would go to that. Jesus goes to the most hated place and spends time with the most hated people. And the Pharisees and the scribes are grumbling because these are the people that want to be near Jesus. And Jesus wants to be near them. That's the context to which this most famous parable comes to fruition. So he tells them these stories and they're parables. And the, the first two, I'm not going to reread them. The first two are pretty simple. So you have, you have this guy who owns 100 sheep, and one of them gets lost. He leaves the 99 to go after the one. And then he celebrates. And he celebrates with his friends. And he calls all of his friends together and says, let's celebrate together. Because what is lost has now been found. This woman, 10 coins, I've lost one of them. She turns over her whole house, sweeps the whole house, finally finds the one coin. And here's the point of those first two small parables that lead up to the big parable, okay? Here's the entire point. What Jesus is saying is that what is lost is extremely valuable. What is lost is extremely 
value. What you all see as traitors, I see as my countrymen. What you all see as ugly and nasty, I see as beautiful. What you see as snakes, I see as sheep that are sheep that are simply gone astray. That's what Jesus is trying to compare these folks that everybody hates. What is lost is incredibly valuable to Jesus, and he desires to go after them. And that's what sets up the prodigal son. So you have this story. It starts in verse 11. And it start, and really, it's a story about two sons. I'm, I'm, somewhere, somebody messed up a long time ago and started to call it the, the parable of the prodigal son. But it actually is a story about two sons. And so it starts with a speech. Then the speech goes like this in verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. So basically what he's saying here is that, hey, dad, uh, you're dead to me. In fact, I wish that you were dead. And because when you die, I get my share of the estate. Now, in in this rule and order, how it worked was they have two sons. The older son was going to receive two-thirds of the property, and the younger son was going to receive one-third. But that only happened when the father dies, okay? It doesn't happen beforehand. It happens when the father dies, and they receive their share of the estate. And so when he comes to his father and says, hey, I want, uh, I want you to give me my share of the estate before you die, it's basically saying, I wish that you were dead so that I could just go ahead and have it. I want your stuff, but I don't want you. That's what I want. And so what's crazy is that when, when, when Jesus said this, it probably to his audience was just like, you are nuts. Like nobody would ever do this. This is pure craziness. And what's crazy is at the end of verse 12, he actually does it. It says, and he, meaning the father, divided his property between them. The Greek word there is divided his property. The Greek word there is bios, bios. How do we know that word? Biology, the study of life. It says there in the Greek text that he divided his life, that this son came and ripped apart his life, and the father willingly did it. He willingly allowed his life to be torn apart, to be given to his son. Crazy. Normally, you'd think that the, 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 the audience probably fully expects that the son gets kicked out, but he doesn't. So verse 13, it says, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property with reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went, him, he went himself to one of the citizens of the country who sent, to, sent him into his field to feed the pigs. Now, now again, again, this is a Jewish society. Pigs were the nastiest animal. You didn't eat them. You didn't touch them. You didn't handle them. Nothing. They were unclean animals. For him to be with the pigs is one thing. For him to be eating the food of the pigs is a whole different level. And he was longing to be fed by them. Verse 17. I love this. Verse 17. Circle in your Bible. Whatever you got. But when he came to himself, when he came to his senses, when he finally thought for himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here in hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servant. Now, he practices this speech. It's a very important speech because it's got a lot going on in it. Now, he doesn't ask. Now, normally we we read this and we think, okay, he's asking to become a slave of the household. We get this. Like, hey, I'm no longer to be called a son. Um, I just want to be a slave. 
That's not exactly what he's saying. He actually says the words hired servant. Now that's different. There's two classes of people. They're slaves who are owned by the family and they lived with the family and they got a lot of the things that the family got. And then there were hired servants who lived outside of the home and who were paid for what they were they were they had done. Now and they would come into the home every day. They wouldn't live there where they would come from outside into the home and they would get paid for the work that they do. And this is what he asks to do. I want to be a hired servant. That's different. I don't get to live in the home anymore. I don't get to be with the family anymore. I get to come in every day and here's the deal. I get to do enough good stuff to pay you back. That's what I want to do. I I can't be a part of the family, but I just want to do enough good stuff to redeem what I've done bad. And that's what he wants. He wants a hired, he wants to be a hired, he wants to be a hired servant to pay back. And this is exactly what we do because we're trying to justify ourselves and pay back God. Verse 18, I will rise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I'm sorry, I already read that. There we go. So it's in verse 20, and he arose and came to his father. But while he, and I love this, man, if you don't get the gospel, this is like the gospel in verse 20, in one verse. It's amazing. Here it is. Okay, excited. Okay. And he arose, came to his father, but while he was still a long way off. Okay, picture this. You got big farm, big house, and the father is waiting for the son to appear. Not, not knowing when he's going to appear, but he's waiting and looking. And the father is always looking for the son to appear. And finally, he finally sees the son's silhouette. He knows his son. He knows how he walks. He knows how he is. He finally sees him out in the distance. And then the father runs. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, not hatred, not justice, not wrath, not I'm mad at you for breaking everything. I'm not mad at you for wasting everything. Not mad at you for doing all these terrible things. He feels compassion on him and he runs and embraces him and kisses him. And here's the deal. And this is why this is so shocking to all the people that would have been listening to Jesus. His patriarchs don't run. They don't. Nobody should run for fun. Like, <laughs> children run, right? In that day, children run. Patriarchs of the family do not run. Why? Because you had these long robes that dragged the ground. And you can't run in a robe. What would you have to do to, to run in a robe? You had to pick it up. To run in a robe, exposing your legs, which should have been shameful to a patriarch of the family. He would have been incredibly undignified to do this. He runs, which is undignified. He pulls up and shows everybody his legs, which is undignified and shameful. And then he greets the son with compassion, which is shameful and reckless. And as soon as he gets there, the son starts the speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And as he has the next breath, the father says, interrupts him, and says, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and the ring on his hand, and the shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us all celebrate, for this is my son who is dead and is alive again. He was lost, and he was found, and they began to celebrate. So before, the, the son had this whole elaborate speech about becoming a hired servant, and the father doesn't even allow him to get to it. 
interrupts him completely and says, bring my clothes, bring my clothes and put it on him. Bring my ring and put it on him. Bring my shoes, put it on him. Kill the fattened calf. We're going to party. Remember a couple weeks ago we talked about the party. We're going to party and it's going to be awesome. Well, Dad, i got to take a shower. No, you're going to put on my robe. Dad, i got to get cleaned up. No, you're going to put on my robe. Dad, I'm all bloody and nasty. I smell like, it doesn't matter. We're going to put on my robe. Well, Dad, i got, I got to do all, nope, you're going to put on my ring, which gives you my authority. We're going to party. And it's going to be elaborate. And people are going to hear about it for ages and ages to come. Now, that's the first act. Second act goes like this. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. Now, he heard dancing. Heard it. Like, are they Irish jigs? Or like, what's, like, that's just fascinating to me. That is no spiritual value, just fascinating. Okay. Obviously, it was a big party. 26. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said, your brother has come home and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Now, kill the fattened calf. Now, that's gross to us. We would never do that. But, but back then, killing the fattened calf was a huge delicacy. It was the prized possession of the family. It was the most important asset. Very difficult to come across. They didn't eat a whole lot of meat back then. A lot of bread, a lot of wheat, a lot of rice, a lot of water, not a whole lot of meat, okay? So to kill a fattened calf was a very big deal. Maybe it happened once a year, but probably not, okay? So very rare that the fattened calf would be killed because it was the most important asset to, uh, to the whole family. All right, so it must have been one heck of a party because they killed the fattened calf. This is the prized possession. And so he's a little bit ticked about this, okay? Verse 28, but he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out. Now get that, circle it in your Bible. I don't care what you like, what you got, whether you got a phone, if you can do that. Here it is. His father came out to him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and never dis- disobeyed your commandment, yet you never gave me a young goat. This is about a goat. And he might, that he might celebrate with my friends. I want to celebrate with my friends, not your friends. I don't want you. I just want your stuff. But when this son of yours, not my brother, when this son of yours, not mine, yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me. And get this, this is important. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive. He is lost and now he is found. So the father comes to the son just like the father came out to the younger son. And he ran out to the younger son. He also comes out to the older son outside of the celebration. And he comes towards and pleads with him. The son answers him, how dare you use our money like this? This is insulting. This traitor, this snake, this reprobate. You didn't consult me. You didn't ask me. You didn't didn't even put him in in time out. Like you never even did that. And you put your clothes on him. And the ring, that's my ring. And you killed the fattened calf, that's mine. And the father responds with such grace even to the older brother. He doesn't condemn the older brother. He responds in grace to the older brother. 
And what's crazy is Jesus doesn't tell us whether the older brother even went in. It's a cliffhanger. Just leaves it there. There's four things I want you to write down this morning and have in your brain, okay? Four things. Here's the first. In a defining in a defining moment, Jesus defines love. This is a defining parable. What I think now the sermon series isn't over, so I can't say this technically, but I think it's the best one. Okay. It's define. Jesus defines love in this parable. What is true love? That's a good question that we should ask. And here's what I think it is. Write this down. Love is the passionate pursuit of what is valuable. Love is the passionate pursuit of what is valuable. Think about that. That it is both an all-encompassing emotion paired with action. That it's not just emotion. And it's not just action. He could have hugged him without loving him. He could have loved him without hugging him. But you have this incredible amount of love that is shown by the father. The shepherd loses one sheep and pursues it because he loves it and he finds it valuable. The woman has incredible value inside of this coin and pursues it and celebrates. You have this father who sits on his front porch waiting for the silhouette of his son to to, to, to make its appearance on the horizon. And he leaps from his chair and runs out there in undignified compassion. Brings his, and all it is is that this, this son, this is incredibly valuable to me. And I love him. And I'm going to passionately pursue him. And so in this parable, Jesus defines what love is for us. It's emotion. The full act of emotion and heart and gut paired with action. Both of them coming together in beautiful matrimony. So Jesus defines love for us. Jesus also does this. He's going to define define God for us. Jesus defines God. The one thing that God, that Jesus calls God, that nobody else does, pretty much in the entire Bible, is this. Father. Jesus calls God Father. There's only once or twice in the Old Testament where somebody calls God Father. It's very rare until Jesus shows up on the scene and he calls God Father almost every time except for one. And I'll tell you what the one is a little bit later. He calls God Father every single time except for one. And so he defined, this is a picture of a father that these people would have never known. The undignified nature of the father, the grace and love, the idea that you had a son come to him and say, hey, I want my property now, I wish you were dead. And the father gives it to him out of grace to keep peace. I want a relationship with you, so I'm going to give it to you. This idea of a father was never known. The idea they didn't kick him out, they didn't kill him. It was amazing. And then the undignified pursuit of love. I'm going to meet you on the road before you even get home and put on my clothes and my ring and my shoes and, and, and we're going to celebrate. This idea of a father is completely different. So Jesus defines, this is what my father is like. And it's, no, it's unlike any father that you have ever known. And nobody has ever given a description like this to anybody. Here's where it gets a little tricky. I think Jesus also, he defines love, he defines God. He defines sin in this parable. 
he defines sin. Now, it's easy, elementary style stuff, to figure out the sin of the younger brother. The sin of the younger brother is pretty traditional. He's got a long list of things that he did wrong. Long list. Here's every committed sin that he's done. You can pick them out one by one of all the traditional sins that, and and those are disobedience against the Father. These are things that the Bible makes very, very clear. These are the things that we should not do. But in the second act of this sermon, he turns the table because you have one son in this parable who is good. And then you have one son in this parable who is not. But here's the deal. Both sons are alienated from the father. Both wanted the father's stuff, but didn't want the actual father. Both sons used the father to get what they wanted. One of them just did it in a very good way, and one of them did it in a very bad way. The second son is lost, not because of his sin, but because of his goodness. Not because of his sinfulness, but because of his righteousness. Now that's a very tricky thing. How in the world can somebody be bad and still be sinful? Or, or, I mean, somebody, how can somebody be good and still be sinful at the same time? How does that work? And the reason why is because all the time we're trying to justify ourselves in front of God. Each one of our, our template for the human heart is to be self-justifying. We just do it in two different ways. The first way is self-discovery. We want to figure it out for ourselves. We want to go commit sins. We want to go sow our wild oats like this first guy. I want to figure this whole thing out for myself. I'm going to go experience some things that I know that are bad, but I want to experience them anyway to figure it out. And we've all done that, have we not? Or we know that we've done some things wrong. We know the things that we should do, and we decide not to do them. We're just trying to discover what this is all about. And then when we figure out that it really isn't that good, that God's plan is better, we come back. And what do we try to do? I've got to repay you for all the stupid things that I've done. I've got to be a hired servant. I've got to tick off all those bad things. Somehow, some way, I have to work it off. That's one way. The other way is a little bit more tricky. And if you've been religious your whole life, it doesn't matter how whether you've been in church your whole life, Catholic church, Protestant church, Baptist church, Pentecost, it doesn't matter. You've been there your whole life. There is, the, there is this idea that we can sin through moral conformity. So you have self-discovery, and then you have moral conformity. Both of these sons were lost. Both of these sons were wrong. And they... One of, them, one of them sinned through self-discovery and one of them sinned through moral conformity. He wanted, and Jesus is looking at him and saying, I'm looking for humility because you're so prideful in your own righteousness that doesn't get you anywhere. And we're both trying to make ourselves, we're trying to, both, we're trying to save ourselves. And the one way that the self-discovery people are trying to do it is to try to erase all the bad things that they do by doing good things and covering them up. And the other way is this moral conformity where it's just like, I'm going to do so much good stuff that it's going to hide all of the reasons why I do it. The reasons why I do it is because I want people to look at me. I want people to see how good I am. 
I want people to see how smart I am. I want God to recognize how good and smart I am. And I want other people to recognize that I'm pretty holy. And that's the reason why I do all those holy things. And at the bottom of it, it might look amazing from the outside. And if you're a church person, this is, this is going to hit you hard because this is where I am. Okay, You're rotten at the core. Because the reasons why you do it, the reasons why we do all those righteousness things, is so that we can manipulate God into, into loving us, and we can manipulate other people into thinking that we're holy. And we're not. And so we have to be very careful about that. Because what happens is that religious people like me, like you, we obey God just so that we can get things from God. Just like the older son. I'm obeying you. I'm doing all the things. Because his list was empty. The younger son's list of sins was so long. It would have taken years to be able to say, this is all the stuff that you did wrong. On the older son, there was nothing on his list. He hadn't done anything wrong except for the deep, conceited pride in his heart that his list was empty. And it was rotten at the core. And so religious people often do all these good things so that they can get things from God. Christians, gospel-centered people who understand the gospel, we obey God so that we can get God, not get things from God. There's a big difference between those two. Last one. Jesus is going to re- to define salvation. Christianity does not divide a world between good and bad people. I hope that you get that. Only bad people exist in this room. There is not good people who do righteous things and bad people who do bad things. There are only bad people. You and I are among those people. There are bad people, and there is God. And that's it. And the default mode of our heart is this idea that we can self-justify in some kind of way. In one of two ways, that self-discovery or moral, moral conformity, but it doesn't go deep enough for our own salvation. So what do we need? What do we need? We need these things. Number one. We need the initiating, initiating love of the Father. Notice in both stories, and I pointed it out earlier, notice in both stories that the Father went out to both sons. He did not wait back for them to come. He went out for both sons. He goes out there because he loves. And we put the, the love of the Father on display. We, he loves the wayward son. So if you're in this room and your list is long and you've got a lot of things that you've done and you consider yourself one of those prodigals, God loves you, and he's initiated by the fact that you're in this room today, that God is pursuing you, and he has compassion on you. He's not looking for you to get your life cleaned up so that finally you can become a Christian. That's not it. He's not asking you to go get cleaned up first. He wants to put his robe on you right now. He wants you to join the party right now. There's no waiting period to join the party. It's not like you can you could have to go through some kind of purification process for several days or several months or several years before you can join the party. That's not how it works. Put the robe on now. Put the ring on now. Join the party right now. Join, you know, do the Irish jig right now. Okay? 
because the party has already started for you. Now, he also loves the other son. He also loves the other son. He goes out to the other son, and he is just as lost as the first son. And if you're a churchy, religious person, you need to do a heart check today, just as I did this week, reading through this passage, that God is initiating with me. Number two, learn how to repent from something other than sin. I know that's a little tricky, but let me walk with you, okay? Learn how to repent from something other than sin. There is a huge difference between a Christian and a moralist. A Christian repents for the things they do wrong, but also repents for the ungodly reasons that we do right things. There are all sorts of things that we do right, but we do them for the wrong reason, and they're equally sinful. So be very careful that you're doing things for God, specifically because he's asked you, not because you're trying to save yourself or knock off some kind of justification or knock something off the list or just stay in his good graces so he doesn't send you to hell or something like that. We live for God to get God, not to get the things of God. So we have to begin to think through. It's not just the things on our list. What are the reasons why I do it? Why do I come to church? Is it just so so God doesn't get mad at me? Why do I serve? Is it just so that God doesn't get mad at me? It's not the reason why. Thirdly, we need to be moved by what it costs to bring us home. We need to be moved by what it costs to bring us home. I know I'm way over time here, but I want to explain this point. We have to see what it costs. I love this last verse because it's absolutely true. The last verse says this. He says, everything that I have is yours. The father tells that to the older son. Everything that I have is yours. That's absolutely true. The father is using the elder son's inheritance to pay for a party for the younger son. That's why he was ticked off. That's my fattened calf. That's my ring. That's my robe. That's my inheritance. He spent all of his. And so the father is pleading with him. And here's the deal. Jesus is telling this story to these religious people because you feel bad for the first son. You feel bad for the younger son. He didn't have anybody come to him. There was no missionary. There was no anybody that came to him. And there's something wrong with that. It's not a full picture of the gospel because the full picture of the gospel has somebody coming to the person in the pig pit. But nobody came to him. And so Jesus' point was, he didn't have an elder brother to come to him. The elder brother stood inside the walls of the home and was mad and did all this righteous stuff and never went and found the younger brother. But we, we have something different. We have an elder brother who is true and better who left the perfect home and left his righteousness and left his glory and came down into our pigsty and pulled us out. That while Jesus hung naked on a cross, he did that so that we can put a robe around us. That's why Jesus does this. He is the true and better elder brother. That's why Jesus is telling this parable. And that's why we exist as a church. 
We exist as a church so that we might be missionaries who go and find people in the pigsty and pull them out and tell them about the love of God. And that's why Jesus is telling these scribes and these Pharisees, hey, you're not doing your job. You need to reach out to them. So we're going to pray. I'm going to pray and I want to just invite you to be thinking through um, this whole process. I'm probably going to dismiss after this. Um, And I'm thankful for you guys bearing with me. Um, But I want to pray and I want to give you an opportunity just to pray for just a second too. So whether, maybe your list is long of things that you've done wrong. I get that. So I want to give you a moment to pray and just ask forgiveness for that. And maybe you're just a righteous, churchy person who's lived their whole life thinking that if I just do enough good stuff, then God will like me. Be careful of why you do what you do. Let's pray together. Take just a moment to plead before God and say, which person in this parable am I? Father, thank you um, for the gift of today. Uh, thank you for a chance to just really dive into your scripture. And thank you for these folks who desire so much to learn from your scripture. And God, I pray uh, for anyone who's um, thinking through this at a hard level um, and, 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 and maybe convicted today. So God, and I pray for oh, just our entire church that we would want to pursue people who desire to be loved. And maybe those who even does, that have no interest in our faith. But God, that we would be missionaries who love people who are unlovable. So God, I pray for people who are like me. Who have grew up in a church background. You don't have much on your list. but you know that there's something deep in your soul that we do things for the wrong reasons. We do them to to think that other people are watching us so we have to do these righteous things, but at the core of who we are, it's not a pursuit of Father. So Father, um, convict us of that. Thank you for giving us this parable. about today, uh, thoughts about today, please come and see me. I'd love to pray with you.